0: If you've ever rented a home, you've probably felt the dread of being evicted from that home for one reason or another. You may have even experienced an eviction firsthand. I have. It completely uproots your life. Whatever else you had going on, your work, your family and friendships, everything gets put on hold as you're forced back into the extremely competitive apartment hunting game. And in cities where rent just keeps increasing to the point of unaffordability, It's not just a matter of inconvenience, what if there are simply no options out there? About a third of Canadians rent their housing, especially in cities. So evictions, or even the threat of them, are weighing on a lot of people's minds. Why do they happen? What recourse do renters have? What happens to the rental unit after the eviction? How big of a problem is this? understanding evictions is a key part of creating a balanced supply of housing. This is The Overhead, understanding Canada's affordable housing crisis. In this, Season 2 of our special series, we will examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. To begin with, let's hear from Adam Monglein. Director of Housing Policy with the Quebec based advocacy group Vivre en Ville. Recently, the group created a rent registry to help track rental units and their change in price over time. It's an opt in, crowdsourced tool Mongrain hopes will empower renters. So, Adam, I wanted to begin by just uh, getting you to explain uh, Vivre en Ville and the, the work that your organization does. Of course. Vivre
1: en Ville is a public interest organization that's been doing research and advocacy for over 25 years, mostly in the province of Quebec. We have three offices in Getsno, Montreal and the Quebec City. And our work has been mostly focused on what we call sustainable communities, sustainable uh, collectivities. Uh, essentially, it's, you know, sustainable development at scale. So instead of uh, treating sustainable development as something that's very contextual something that can happen on a limited site we try to advocate for policies that make sense in a territorial scale so that means or regional scale so that means building entire networks entire societies that manage to thrive and manage to uh, be complete living spaces for the people who live in them without overtaxing our natural financial and social
0: resources. How did the organization form?
1: Right. So it formed in 1996, around the time where globalization was a growing concern and the uh, excesses of the 80s and 90s in terms of pollution and car-oriented development were becoming growing concerns. So out of the let's say, melting pot of environmental concerns in the 90s, Uh, people in the province of Quebec decided to start uh, an organization to advocate for sustainable development practices and orientations geared towards especially cities and provincial governments.
0: Most recently, you've been really looking at the housing crisis in Quebec and, frankly, all over Canada. I I wanted to ask you about the Leger poll that you did Of renters all across the province. What were some of the key findings out of of that poll?
1: Uh, Data about renters is pretty scarce and and full of holes in Canada. We we have no clear uh, information about what's going on except during the census, which has data that goes out of date very quickly because uh, renters tend to move a lot and rents tend to move a lot also. So in order to support what we've been doing in terms of uh, solutions work and and, uh, innovation work, we wanted to know what was going on with the actual situation of renters and tenants in Quebec. Uh, And what we have is the largest ever poll or even research about what's going on in renters. And personally, I found that there were a lot of insights that were not surfaced previously that 10% of all renters declare having been in a homeless or houseless situation seems like a huge number. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's as shocking to me as when we had the first uh, report by Kinsey about sexuality, where it turns out that a lot more people than we thought were not straight up heterosexual. 10% of all tenants have been in homeless situations. So that means that it's a very well spread phenomenon. And a lot of our people are in between places for, you know, either short or long bouts of time, but uh, they're not housed properly. And in Quebec, that's 40% of all households are uh, renter households. So that means that homelessness is a much more widespread phenomenon than what's visible with the current stats we have. Uh, We've also found that in between apartments, uh, rents go up by close to 20%. The actual number is 18.56%. It's it's a crazy amount. It uh, mm-hmm. means that it, it keeps people in place. And uh, we've heard in the past few years as the housing crisis deepened in Quebec that uh, a lot of people stay in bad situations. They're in overcrowded places. They're uh, living in violent situations with either roommates or, or uh, spouses or, or other people. They're living too far from their place of work. They're living too far uh, from their uh, kids' schools. And they can't move because if they do, the average rent increase is 20%, which is a crazy number because none of our incomes are actually increasing by 20% at a time right now. Uh, so that, that gap between current rents and the next rent you could pay is freezing a lot of people in a lot of places and it's bad for the entire housing market.
0: And so besides the, the poll that you've commissioned, uh, you've created this rent registry and, uh, you know there's nothing quite like it as i understand in, in quebec at the moment i, I know that uh, mayor valerie plant has been trying to implement something similar but you've gone ahead and done it because uh, as i understand the the information is in the public domain landlords have to declare uh, at uh, revenue canada but uh, what did you hope to accomplish with this uh, rent registry and how do- how does it work
1: It's not a new idea. There are a couple of places, especially in the U.S., that have their own rent registries, like Washington, D.C., and uh, San Jose, if I'm not mistaken. San Francisco has one, I'm sure of that. You know, the symmetry of information is something that's been tested out in practice and in theory, and it's uh, a key component of efficient and well-functioning markets. I am in favor of much, much, much more non-market or non for profit housing situation. But the reality is that most of us are going to be housed in market housing for most of our lives. It's it's over 90% of the stock right now. If we're going to be in a housing market, then we should apply rules and conditions that make sure that the market works out to the interest of the consumers. Uh, and having all the information available so that you know what the fair price is for what you're about to buy or rent is a, a key component of making sure that the market is working properly. Now, in Quebec in particular, uh, this information is particularly interesting because ever since 1979, the Civil Code of Quebec says that when you are about to sign a lease, the landlord has to provide the lowest rent that was paid for this unit in the previous 12 months. Mm-hmm. It's in the law right now. And that that information is the peg from which reason. Or guideline leases and in rent can be calculated. So it means that when you go in front of the Tribunal administratif de Dogement, which is the specialized tribunal that rules on on uh, housing matters in Quebec, uh, if you go to say, well, I've been uh, subjected to an unfair price hike or hike, uh, they need to know what was the lowest price paid in the previous twelve months to calculate what would be a fair increase in rents, and. It's in the standard lease contract, so it's it's supposed to be there for everyone to know whenever you're signing a lease. What we found in the poll is that only 20 tenants know what the uh, previous rent was for their own apartment. So that means that this provision that we have in Quebec, which should help keep the existing laws functioning so that there's a a continuity in rent prices is not systematically applied. rental registry would solve a bunch of problems at once. It would be an automatic disclosure of the rents that were paid for all rental units in the province. And it would also give us much more clarity on what is actually going in on the rental market because the, the poverty of data that we have in the actual market situations is keeping public actors, city governments, provincial governments, and federal governments from developing policies which are actually informed by the reality on the ground. So a rental registry that would collect all of this information and make it available systematically would allow the application of existing law and provide new opportunities for policy innovation.
0: Another thing I, I could imagine it would help with, uh, I'm not entirely sure if it's the same laws in, in Quebec, but in Ontario, we have a big problem with so-called rel eviction where the landlord will say, Oh, I, I have a, a niece, a, a daughter or something. She's got to move in. And so you've got to get out. And it turns out that, you know, it was just an excuse to, to kick the existing tenant out and, and, and drive the price up, uh, as far as they mm-hmm. can legally drive it up. Is that a similar situation in Quebec? Yes, of course. Of course. It's everywhere.
1: Uh the housing crisis. I don't think it depends on a individual actor. I think we're in in uh in a context where there are structural incentives to just hike the rent as much as high as it can go. And we've seen this a lot in Quebec, especially as rent prices have gone up, the incentive to get rid of existing tenants to replace them with higher paying tenants is there and it would have a dampening effect on this phenomenon because, especially with the laws that we have here, if we can talk frankly about what's going on, the incentive to get rid of your existing tenants is to find new tenants that are going to give you more money. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: If the incoming tenants know what the price used to be, and there are laws that make sure there's a continuity in prices, that removes a lot of the incentives to get rid of your existing tenants to find new tenants it removes some of the guarantee, some of the confidence that you might have that the new tenants that you're going to fill your apartments with are going to be giving you more money than the ones you already have. Uh, so that 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 information being out there, especially in combination with policies that make sure that rents stay at their current prices is probably going to have a, a very good effect on rent evictions.
0: I mean, I could see this uh, scaling out to... to- to every province in Canada, but uh, within Quebec, you, you have already gotten uh, the support of, of certain municipalities. It seems like uh, this idea is is catching on, and uh, that uh, governments, maybe at every level, would uh, would like to uh, make use of the rent registry and, and maybe support you, right, in the up upkeeping of it.
1: Right. Well, that was the point uh, of what we we set out to do for a bunch of. Good and, and bad reasons. Uh, governments in Canada don't have a, a perfect score sheet when it comes to ordering websites or, or building websites. And historically, uh, some of the arguments made against the registry was that it would be too expensive to build and upkeep. And it might have been. We, we've seen we've seen projects. It's been it's been reported on projects that have taken five years to build and have tens of millions of dollars in, in uh, cost overrun. With the registry we've built now, we've built it to governmental standards. We've built it so that if a government audit happens, it will pass the test with flying colors. So that means that it's already something that the government can make use of and it's free. The reason we built it is to give it away. So all it needs now is someone to take over it because vivre is not a government. We're not the people we, we, we can't make laws, we can't make rules, but we can offer uh, solutions that impact on the lives of people. And the rental registry is available for every government that wants to try it out. And I would say that the risk is kind of very low with going forward with the rental registry, because since it costs nothing it, and it, it won't cost anything, then there's no sunk cost. If governments try it out and it doesn't give the intended results, they can drop it. And I will salute <laughs> a government dropping it because it does not it does not give the expected results. I we, we build this because we think it would help. If it doesn't help, then let's not do it. And if it does help, why not take it? It's it's there right now for the taking and for a bunch of theoretical and practical reasons, it would make a difference. and would open out a lot of doors in policy innovation and make sure that the housing market
0: we live in works properly. Next, Julie Ma is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. Much of her work focuses on the concept of gentrification. Ma explains what that means in today's urban neighbourhoods, what causes it, and the effect it has on evictions. So Julie, you've done a lot of work on gentrification, and I think that's a term that people sort of understand in in general terms, but uh, I I was wondering if you could kind of break down what that means uh, in in a major Canadian city.
2: So there are, of course, different conceptualizations um, of gentrification. And I like to use Jason Hackward's definition, which is the production of urban space for progressively more affluent users. I use it because it still incorporates and um, is based on sort of that, those class based tensions that uh, Ruth Glass intended when she first coined the term in the 1960s. And it also, though, is broad enough to include the evolving forms of gentrification. Because gentrification has really evolved since Roof Glass was observing it in London in terms of the residential rehabilitation that was occurring and sort of all the different spatial manifestations that has occurred um, in different places. And gentrification really occurs in different ways in different places. And it can occur differently, say, from one neighborhood even, To another neighborhood, and definitely it occurs differently city by city. So, if we think about in Toronto, it could be, you know, like in terms of new build gentrification as well, but also the residential rehabilitation that we've seen in places like Little Italy and um, other uh, neighborhoods, and it's sort of the neighborhoods downtown. But then also, if we think about what's happening related to the Eglinton Crosstown. A lot of new buildings have either uh, been uh, built or a lot of applications have gone in along that Eglinton Crosstown. So that's sort of that that transit induced gentrification that we're seeing. So there are different mechanisms that actually then uh, spur gentrification but then also then those different spatial forms. So it could be sort of those new high-rises that you're seeing, that condification of Toronto that's been occurring, or just the fact that you have uh, semi-detached and detached houses being built up in places that typically have not been gentrified and now are being bought and uh, fixed up.
0: And, and so, in a city like Toronto, what role does this kind of gentrification that you're seeing in the modern day, what role does that play in
2: evictions? Well, that's the thing that we're trying to explore and examine. What is the relationship between evictions and gentrification. So you know trying to figure out what is the role of evictions in that, in the urban displacement process. So that's that question I'm really exploring now. And you can see, you see evictions happening either before gentrification happens, right? So in previously disinvested areas that are, then you have a huge rent gap. And then in order to then close that rent gap, landlords are seeing that there's this possibility to actually perhaps renovate those units. Um, and in so doing, push out existing tenants because they know post-rehabilitation and post-renovation, they can then attract more affluent users who will then pay a higher rent, right? Right. So you do see it happening in those areas where you see early signs of gentrification. And if you look at the stage model of gentrification, that is sort of what you expect, Right. But you also see evictions, I did research in Detroit, where you you see happening in non-gentrifying areas as well. And there are different um, dynamics at play there. But that's the sort of, that's what we're trying to figure out right now. I'm creating a neighborhood change map. So I'm looking at um, what has happened in terms of neighborhood change over time from 2001 to 2021 in the city. Um, And then seeing how that relates to evictions.
0: Right. I I wonder, can we have it both ways in a city like Toronto? Because I think a lot of pro-housing people would say that uh, we need condos built. uh, We need as many units uh, as possible to accommodate the the growth of the city. And I think most people would agree that uh, we need more higher order transit, uh, more connectivity across the city. Uh, so people can get, you know, all over. But uh, on the other hand, we, we don't want to be pushing people out of existing neighborhoods, especially, yeah. especially people, uh, lower income people or, you know, marginalized people that uh, if they lose the place that they're at right now, they're going to have a, f- a hard time finding a new place in a, in a rapidly, increasingly expensive city.
2: Yeah, that's the dilemma. And that's sort of the, the really important plotting question. So how do you promote growth and equity? Mm -hmm. So we know that the city is growing a lot of people coming in. We need to have places for them to live. And also the fact that we need to build um, better transit and really improve that transit infrastructure um, and the transportation infrastructure. So how do we do it in a way where you understand, you proactively anticipate that there are, and we know from a lot of research, that there are uh, negative impacts that come when you do improve, when you revitalize the area, when you create new development and bring new development coming in, that that then also creates these negative externalities, negative impacts, such as displacement evictions. So then how do you mitigate that and be proactive to mitigate that? in order to ensure that everybody can benefit from redevelopment. So when we talk about displacement as well, is that is there is that, of course, that direct displacement, which is very serious, but then there is that indirect displacement that can occur when a place such as Parkdale is, is gentrified and changed to such a degree that longstanding residents no longer feel that they belong in that space anymore. Right. So it's also the role of the planner to try to mitigate that sense of cultural displacement from these areas that they lived in for for so long by trying to identify spaces of belonging so then that can be protected and enhanced. Right. But that needs to come from, you know, constant consultation and discussions with uh, existing tenants. So there is that piece as well. And planners really, it's not, you know, planning is not just about land use. Planning is also about fostering a sense of belonging.
0: It sounds like an incredibly difficult circle to square.
2: Yep. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Yeah. And that's this is the question that drives my research is like, how do we do this? First, understand what is the problem, what is what are the in those negative impacts? And then what can we do to solve it or to mitigate it to a certain degree, right? So it's to understand those structural factors and drivers of evictions, of displacement in those forms that I mentioned, direct and indirect. And then what can we do to make sure that that it doesn't happen or that um, it's mitigated?
0: I imagine when you talk about these things, the way we talk about housing currently, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and that kind of thing. Uh, it can be very divisive. Yeah. And so these concerns that you're you're bringing up about displacement and, you know, especially of marginalized or low income people, it's deeply concerning. But you know, on the other side, you you have people saying that we we just have to build more units everywhere uh, faster. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle where I, I, I see both sides, but uh, I, I don't want one at the expense of the other.
2: And that's a, that's a great question. But it's sort of how in terms of defining the problem, too, I think that that's important because how you define the problem also determines the solutions that are then developed to address that problem. So right now, the problem is identified or defined as a lack of supply a lack of housing supply. Mm -hmm. Is that really the problem or is it the lack of the right type of supply? And then it's to understand all of the other structural issues in terms of financialization that then drives these problems and the housing crisis. And then to understand that and then to create these policy interventions that then really address the real problem and not just the symptoms, and I think that's the issue. It's like when you have evidence-based policy making, it's only effective if you actually have the evidence. And I'm not sure in terms of when we come to evictions whether we really understand sort of the full extent of this issue. And that's what a lot of researchers—that's what we're engaged in doing right now—is to really understand. Where is it happening? Who is doing this? And then what can we do to address this issue?
0: Well, Julie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
2: Okay, thank you so much.
0: Finally, Alexandra Flynn is an associate professor at the Allard School of Law, University of British Columbia. British Columbia has experienced extremely high eviction rates. recently the provincial government made changes to its Residential Tenancy Act to prevent so-called bad faith evictions, and a landmark court decision managed to prevent the encampment evictions we've seen in many Canadian cities. We ask Flynn about each of these developments. So, Alexander, you're out in British Columbia, and I was hoping to begin this conversation by getting a sort of picture of eviction patterns in Vancouver and BC municipalities. I I read in 2021 that the eviction rate was as high as 10.5% in Vancouver, which uh, was higher at the time than Toronto or Montreal. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's pretty staggering.
3: It's staggering. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, when you think about 10 people being in a room and one of them having an eviction order over their heads, that's basically what's happening in Vancouver.
0: And so what is behind these extremely high eviction percentages?
3: You know, it comes down to what's allowable under the law. In uh, in BC, like many other provinces in Canada, the landlord-tenant rules allow for landlords to evict people based on, you know, needing to use the the housing for their own use, um, or all sorts of other practices that have nothing to do with the tenant's conduct. So even if a tenant is paying rent on time, you know, doing everything they're supposed to be doing there's uh, caveats in the legislation that allow for an eviction to happen. And that's what we're seeing in BC.
0: I understand that there there have been some changes to BC's Residential Tenancy Act, uh, including sort of attempts to address the so-called bad faith evictions. Are you seeing those changes taking any effect or, uh, you know, are there other changes that still need to happen?
3: It's hard to tell. I mean, the housing center that I'm part of at UBC is going to be releasing a report next week, which talks about the new updated information based on census data. And it doesn't look like there's been a big change, unfortunately. There certainly was a change over the pandemic. So we saw then that based on eviction moratoriums and other practices, there was a reduction. So when there's other counteracting policy initiatives that are introduced, including income support, then we see a downturn in evictions. But based on the law itself, uh it doesn't look like that's the case.
0: Well we have similar protections, you know, so-called in Ontario. Landlords will say, oh, my niece needs to move in, so we need the the unit for our own use. So you have to, you have to get out and and then you'll find that that same unit on the market at, at a you know, newly extravagant price. Uh, and, you know, the, the niece didn't exist and doesn't live there. But most people who are tenants, they don't have the time or the means to fight that kind of fight. It, it can be costly and it can, you know, take a, a lot of effort. And, and uh, you know, in, in the meantime, they they need somewhere to live.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it puts a lot on individuals who are already dealing with um, a very low vacancy rate, as well as just super high rents, you know, it just puts so much on them to then say, okay, you need to be tracking the the way in which this law is actually being regulated. And, you know, in BC, like in Ontario, we don't have as much support for tenants as exists in, say, Quebec. Um, So in Quebec, there's advocacy centres that are set up just to help tenants who are dealing with a prospective eviction. Um, literally a phone number that somebody can call up and say, listen, I've been threatened with an eviction. What are my rights? What can I do? Some of that exists in BC and Ontario, but not to the same degree at all. And that makes a big difference too, because you know, we need plain language, very accessible information to help people navigate through the process, not needing to do any outside research or you know, trying to track down who else the landlord might have rented the place to. Like, that's too much for most people who are balancing jobs and kids and and lives. And then,
0: you know, this has existed forever, but uh, it became very prominent uh, during the pandemic when we started seeing a different type of eviction. uh, That is uh, evictions of people who have created their own shelters because they have nowhere else to go or uh, can't rely on the shelter system or, or find it unsafe or you know at the time we're afraid of contracting covid there many different reasons why you know different kinds of shelter are not available or not ideal or, or or substandard and people took matters into their own hands and 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 built their own shelters in in parks and public spaces in the outdoors those battles have been going on all over canada and sometimes people are able to push back and and keep from you know their their small patch of some place to live getting taken away. And in most cases, though, they're they're cleared out. I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the court decision uh, of Victoria, the muni- municipality uh, versus Adams. And that was kind of a landmark case uh, in terms of uh, encampment evictions there.
3: Absolutely. I'm so happy that you're bringing this up, Glenn. I think one of the important things that has happened since uh, Leilani Farha and Caitlin Schwan published um, a human right to housing and talking about encampments and encampment evictions is that those kinds of displacements are seen as evictions, um, and that's a real change in language, but also in um, in thinking about what is a home. Mm-hmm. So in Victorian Adams, this was a 2009 British Columbia case that came out of the Court of Appeal. It was a landmark decision, as as you mentioned, and it was a landmark decision because it said that municipalities could not just rely on bylaws alone um, when thinking about their engagement with encampments. Up until that point, a municipality could just introduce a bylaw, and if that bylaw said there's no camping that's allowed on a beach or in a park, that would be the end of the story. A municipality could use its its kind of interest as a almost like a private property holder of the park to evict people, to use trespass orders and have them removed. Mm-hmm. And the BC Court of Appeal said no. It's not an absolute right. If there are insufficient shelter spaces that exist, then nighttime encampments are permitted. And that was notable because it put some safeguards around encampment residents, put some protections around them based on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And since that case, we've seen an evolution in protections for encampment residents. We've seen more and more conditions being placed on municipalities That stop them from evicting people just because their bylaws say that they're allowed to. You
0: you said in a TVO piece you you were interviewed for, you described the the human rights floor being set by the courts and, and not by the municipalities themselves. Could you unpack what you meant by that a little bit?
3: Yeah. So unlike other jurisdictions around the world, we don't have any legislation that's binding at the municipal scale that guarantees some kind of right to housing. We have a federal act, which I can talk about later. But in terms of what municipalities can and can't do, we don't see any requirements that are set by the legislature that guarantee people a right to housing. And that has huge ramifications for all of the kinds of evictions that that we're talking about today. Um, But when it comes to encampments, it means that the only way to figure out if a municipality is acting in a good way the courts need to be the ones to intervene. The legislature has not. And so the courts are the ones who are essentially determining the policy decisions that municipalities are going to be making around encampment evictions, which is a huge problem because the courts are just fundamentally not a good way to deal with this kind of issue. And number two, it's really difficult to have encampment residents going to court to deal with this issue. I mean, these are our most vulnerable people who have very few options in terms of legal supports or any kinds of supports
0: right it seems like these kind of things shouldn't even reach the courts the court should be an absolute last the last kind of defense against this sort of thing but why are municipalities lagging so far behind even our you know judicial system
3: municipalities argue that they don't have the resources to deal with encampments you know, this is about affordable housing, lack of affordable housing, and the property tax, which is the main way that municipalities are funded, is not appropriate for addressing the the magnitude of the problem. And they're not incorrect. I mean, that is true. Municipalities don't have the resources to build all of the housing that's needed in Canada. But that is essentially why they act the way they do. They they feel that encampments are a big problem, Um uh, on all sorts of grounds from health to fire safety to the interests of residents, other residents. And so therefore they need to clear encampments in order to address those other problems and that it should be left to the federal and provincial governments to deal with the bigger issue, which is, which is affordable housing.
0: And, and you mentioned that the, the federal government has a, a role to play in this. Do you, do you mind uh, kind of explaining that?
3: So the federal government uh, passed a piece of legislation called the National Housing Strategy Act, which was passed in 2019. This was a game changer um, in terms of legislation. It recognized a progressive right to the realization of the right to housing that's enshrined in international obligations. So that piece of legislation has a lot of potential to shape where we see obligations of governments. If it extended to the municipal scale, municipalities couldn't just rely on bylaws. They would have to figure out a different way of ensuring that people had basic rights to housing, whether that was encampments or shelters or what have you, in a way that looked at the dignity and human rights of encampment residents as that was being done. So for example, that could mean that an encampment could not be cleared unless there were adequate consultation measures that were introduced, unless there was uh, attempts to work with encampment residents to figure out what the best place for them would be, and to ensure that there were supports, including legal supports, all the way through. So those things don't exist right now in Canada.
0: Right. But you mentioned uh, this legislation was passed in 2019. Granted, there there was a global pandemic. Uh, Things got a little wild out there for for the last couple of years, but... um, we we still, in the face of that, saw many, you know, encampment evictions. I'm just wondering, what kind of incentives does the federal government have to enforce this? And, you know, do, does this legislation have any teeth?
3: I mean, it's tricky because in our federal structure, you've probably heard this idea that municipalities, I mean, you've definitely, you definitely heard this, <laughs> I know, that municipalities are creatures of the province, which isn't quite right. But there's no doubt that under the Constitution... Municipalities get their powers through provincial acts, um, not through the federal government. And so even though the federal government has introduced this piece of legislation, provinces have not introduced this legislation or an equivalent. They haven't um, adopted it as part of their provincial frameworks. And so because of that, that legislation doesn't apply at the municipal scale. There's a lot of different people who are working on that specific questions. How to tie that federal act to the municipality? I have some ideas on how that might be done. I'm going to be, you know, researching that this summer. That's a big uh, a big priority for me. It's certainly not the first time we've had a federal government uh, initiated policy uh, at the national scale that does apply at the provincial scale, like for example, healthcare. All provinces across Canada and all territories across Canada have to have publicly available health care. And the way that that's done is that the federal government obligates provinces to do that through funding agreements. So I'll be exploring that question with the right to housing. Is there a way to bind provincial and municipal governments through through agreements? But at the moment, we're not there. We don't have anything that's tying this this federal right to housing to the municipal scale.
0: We're waiting for it to scale down. uh, We're waiting
3: for it to scale down. From
0: the top down, yeah. You mentioned the housing centre that you work with. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about that before we go?
3: I would love to. So the Housing Research Collaborative is an amazing collection of folks that are working on critical housing and homelessness issues across the country. So many of our participants are from UBC, where I work, but we also have academics From across the country. And most importantly, we have practitioners from across the country. So, a number of organizations that, again, work on these issues that bring to the table direct experience at the policy scale, at the programming scale. And so, we all come together to research issues that are of current crucial importance, whether it's evictions, like the topic that we've talked about today or financialization of housing, or the growth of Indigenous-led development in the housing sector. And so this collaborative is unique in the sense that it is a partnership between organizations working on the ground and people working
2: in universities.
0: When I was evicted, It took me three moves in two years before I finally found a place that I could afford, where I could get to work on time, and frankly, that felt like home. It was a miserable experience, pretty expensive, and I don't think I can ask my friends to help me move ever again. But I was lucky. I was able to afford the upheaval, I was never forced to couch surf, and it all worked out. Not everyone is so lucky. Evictions are a huge problem and the sign of an even bigger systemic problem. We need solid data about eviction rates, we need fair and expedient arbitration of landlord and tenant disputes, and we need to change the housing supply so evictions are no longer profitable. Finally, we need to observe people's human rights to shelter and cease encampment evictions. It shouldn't take a court decision to defend these rights, These are something our cities and governments should be proactively defending. Otherwise, well, there's one kind of eviction I don't really mind, and it's the kind that happens the day after an election. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the Balanced Supply of Housing Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes, so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighborhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley, original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Thank you to Tara Fernando for production assistance. On the next episode of The Overhead, real estate investment trusts and their role in rental housing.